From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Plastic pollution can interfere with folic acid in ways linked to autism. Some moms have a much higher need for folic acid, and that's because their genes don't convert to folate very quickly. And as a result, they are at much higher risk for having a child with autism. Also, stories from the great African sea forest, including a close encounter with a South African otter. And it came right in front of my face, and I stared into that wild face of that Cape Clawless otter. And it put its little hands out and started touching my face, and it was just almost too much. I was overwhelmed. A deep dive with Academy Award-winning director of My Octopus Teacher, Craig Foster, this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX in the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The number of children being diagnosed in the U.S. with autism spectrum disorder is growing at an astonishing rate, up some 7% over recent years, according to the Centers for Disease Control. And scientists are pointing to a small number of studies that link plastics to the increase in autism, a disorder often marked by poor social and communication skills, as well as learning troubles that require special help. Phthalates are a group of chemicals used to make plastics more flexible and are found in a variety of products from shampoo to food packaging. Phthalates have been already associated with several maladies, including obesity, heart disease, reduced IQ, and birth defects. And now a half dozen studies link phthalate exposure to the disruption of how our genes tell our body to curate folate, a compound for proper brain development. The CDC announcement follows a commentary and study in the journal Pediatrics, where scientists and clinicians urged that study of autism should also consider genetic interactions with toxic chemicals. The good news is that even with the proliferation of plastics, there is a fairly simple and inexpensive public health solution that could cut the rise in autism, supplemental folic acid for women. For more, we turn now to Dr. Irva Hertz-Pachotto, director of the University of California Davis Environmental Health Sciences Center and a co-author of this study. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Irva. Thank you for having me. So as I understand it, uh, the CDC has found a 7% increase in diagnosed autism among 8-year-olds over the course of the past two years. Boy, that's a pretty high rate. Uh, How concerning is that? Definitely, it's concerning. I mean, the number of children who need special education, special facilities, may have all kinds of difficulties in school, but also just in daily living. It's a remarkably high percentage. And because they often need a lot of special attention, you know, special accommodations for their impairments, it's got economic consequences. It certainly has lots of financial and social and emotional consequences for the families. So, yes, I agree. It is quite concerning. Now, researchers have known about autism and a connection of some sort to genetics since the 70s. But now we're learning through studies like yours that chemicals, such as the plasticizers, the phthalates, may well have a role to play when it comes to neurological development. So, in your view, what's the relationship, if any, between autism, genetics, genetic expression, and chemical exposure? Well, there is an abundant literature now on genetics. So we have a really good sense of many of the genetic factors that might regulate how the body, you know, metabolizes chemicals that we're exposed to and how certain kinds of genes that regulate the development of the brain might be affected. So there's a lot of potential for susceptibility during the prenatal period in particular. And that isn't a time period when exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals seem to have strong impacts on uh, behavior, memory, cognitive abilities, and also mood issues like depression and anxiety. All of these seem to be affected by, in particular, phthalates. I'll I'll just cite those because there's a growing literature on these compounds, the phthalates. 
One of the most interesting parts of your paper, which is actually kind of a meta-study, you look at a number of different studies looking at autism, is the impact that folic acid, folate, this nutrient that's found in everything from kale to lentils to all sorts of things. Well, you tell me what was the impact of people getting good amounts of folic acid in their diets. Some of our studies and studies by others have shown that folate is really important in autism and mothers who did not have sufficient folate in the very early part of their pregnancy, and I mean like the first month, were more likely to have a child that developed autism when they reached the age where autism can be diagnosed, let's say age you know, two, three, four, five, and so forth. So folate seems to be critical for more than just the gross formation of the brain, but also for other aspects of brain function related to communications and, and social interactions and so forth. To what extent does adequate folate uh, blunt the impact of chemicals like phthalates that have been implicated in this autism spectrum disorder, dare I say, epidemic? Well, very interestingly, what our studies and, and several other investigators have found was that some moms have a much higher need for folic acid, and that's because their genes don't convert to folate very quickly, and as a result they are at much higher risk for having a child with autism. So it's the combination of low folic acid intake and certain genetic variants that lead to a greater need for more folic acid and therefore a higher risk if they don't get it, that their child would develop autism. And the moms who do get enough folic acid and have the genes that are really beneficial to moving that folic acid into folate and then into its methylated state, which makes it really effective. Those are the moms who are least likely to have a child with autism. And if she has the good genes and so does her baby, then there's an even more of a benefit with a 70% reduction in the risk for autism combined with the folic acid intake. Because uh, brain development happens so early in pregnancy, really, within just the, f the first few weeks, this vulnerability to a deficit in, in folate, to what extent should women of childbearing age be making sure that they always have a decent level of folic acid in their diets on the chance that they may become pregnant at some point and may not understand that they're pregnant during this time that this important development is taking place? That's exactly right. Half of pregnancies are not planned, approximately, and, you know, we're not going to change people's behavior to have everybody planning their pregnancies. So being prepared by having already been taking folic acid supplements or prenatal supplements would really probably be beneficial all around. And that could be a really easy public health intervention for women to be strongly encouraged to do so. Now, this research that you're involved with is limited in the scope in the public health community. I think, what, there are less than a, a dozen studies that really look closely at environmental toxicity and uh, genetics and autism. Why is that? Well, I think scientists kind of work in silos, and the geneticists are interested in the genetics. And the environmentalists are quite busy, uh, you know, studying the environment. It's shocking to me that... The research on the causes for autism is about 20 years, you know, mature at this point in time. I mean, even in the 1990s, there were genetic studies. I would say the environmental studies really picked up in the mid to late first decade of this century. There's a lot of work going on separately, but combining the two requires really special circumstances. You've got to get larger studies, larger sample sizes, but environment is... Um, may require a lot more <laughs> to be able to measure it. Plus, it's changing. You know, the DNA code is, is constant throughout your life, whereas the environment changes day by day or hour by hour sometimes. And so it's harder. And I think having the brains coming from both of those fields, combining their intellect and creatively finding the solutions to these challenges would really catapult that literature forward. 
Dr. Irva Hertz Pichotto is director of the University of California Davis Environmental Health Sciences Center. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, bald eagle populations are on the rebound, making them easy to spot, even in the most unexpected places. But first, this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. Weighing over 2,000 pounds with large tusks and heavy skulls, walruses are a formidable Arctic mammal. But research now suggests that polar bears may have found a way to kill the massive pinnipeds. For centuries, Inuit hunters in Greenland and the eastern Canadian Arctic have told stories about polar bears dropping large stones or blocks of ice onto walruses. Explorers and naturalists often dismiss these stories as myths. But the persistence of such stories, along with photos of a polar bear at a Japanese zoo using tools to obtain suspended meat, compelled biologists to investigate. Researchers reviewed historical and recent observations reported by Inuit hunters and non-Inuit researchers. They also looked at documented observations of polar bears and brown bears using tools in captivity to access food. The researchers concluded that tool use in wild polar bears, though infrequent, does occur in the case of hunting walruses. Tool use by animals to solve problems is generally regarded as a sign of higher intelligence but studies on the cognitive abilities of polar bears are lacking. However, scientists say that a great deal of observational information suggests polar bears are very smart. Polar bears feed mainly on seals, which they hunt by looking for the seals' breathing holes on sea ice. But climate change is melting Arctic sea ice, so some scientists think that hungry polar bears may increasingly attack walruses for food. That's this week's note on emerging science, I'm Don Lyman. If you like listening to Living on Earth, please join us by telling people you know to tune in to our podcast. And if you can, please send us a donation. $5 or more makes a difference. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. Thanks. Support for the Living on Earth podcast comes from IM Bio. Where do biotechnology, politics, patients, and our planet all intersect? Find out by listening to the IM Bio podcast. Hosted by Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath, President and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, IM Bio brings you powerful stories of biotech breakthroughs. Discover the biggest threats to our planet's water supply, new vaccine technologies, the latest Alzheimer's research findings, and more. Subscribe to IM Bio wherever you get your podcasts. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Bald eagle numbers have roughly quadrupled in the last decade, up to more than 300,000 today. They are becoming so common that many people, including Living on Earth's Sophia Pandelitis, are spotting bald eagles in one of the last places you might expect. The sharp silhouette of New York City slices into a frigid blue sky. On this Sunday morning, Central Park is buzzing, alive with the chatter of friends and family. Children, rosy-cheeked, race among the trees. Dogs thump their tails, and those weary of the bustling city bask in this oasis of nature for a few moments. A mere tourist, I stroll among them with my college friend. As we shuffle along one of the reservoirs, an unexpected sight suddenly bursts into view. A flurry of wings, and yes, could it be? A pinprick of white soaring above the water. A bald eagle, majestic and wild, in Central Park of all places. Hands all around me point towards the sky, and voices exclaim in surprise. I came for a weekend trip to the big city, only to find that wildlife is everywhere, even here. 
Later, I would learn that this bald eagle has long been known to local birders, and he's even got a name. Rover was born in New Haven, Connecticut in 2018, along with two siblings. The chicks caught the attention of local biologists, who banded the birds to keep track of them. Rover turned up in Brooklyn in 2020, then moved to Manhattan this year. Loads of New Yorkers have stories of watching Rover hunt in Central Park. Just catching a glimpse of this now-famous character was thrilling for me. Bald eagle populations plummeted in the 20th century largely from hunting, habitat loss, and eating prey animals that have been contaminated with DDT, which thins eggshells. Scientists believe Rover's presence in New York City may be a sign that the bald eagle is making a comeback in urban areas as well as more wild ones. When we create and care for parks in our cities, they become little biodiversity hotspots that benefit not only us, but our feathered friends too. Maybe the next time I am in New York, the flowers will be in bloom and I will see Rover fly again. Maybe, just maybe, Rover will have a mate in tow and new life will be on the horizon. That's Living on Earth's Sophia Pandelitis. To get the stories behind the stories on Living on Earth, as well as special updates, please sign up for the Living on Earth newsletter. Every week you'll find out about upcoming events and get a look at show highlights and exclusive content. Just navigate to the Living on Earth website, that's loe.org, and click on the newsletter link at the top of the page. That's loe.org. Oceans cover about 70% of our planet and hold 95% of our biosphere, that is, places where life can thrive. We humans can relate easily to some marine species, especially whales, dolphins, and seals, you know, mammals who breathe air like we do. But befriending and learning from creatures with gills and without backbones is an unusual pastime for humans, unless you are Craig Foster. Diving virtually every day for years into the nearshore waters of South Africa with just a mask, snorkel, and flippers, Craig eventually became friends with an octopus and told the story in his 2020 Academy Award-winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Craig Foster's daily practice of diving in the shallow waters of the great African sea forest has yielded some fascinating insights into the lives of creatures living there. With friend and diving partner Ross Freilink, he wrote the 2021 book Underwater Wild, My Octopus Teacher's Extraordinary World. The movie itself is compelling, and this book is even more amazing, if that's possible, as it tells the stories of the kelp forest with stunning photographs and gripping prose. Craig joined me from Cape Town for Living on Earth Book Club event, and I started by asking him to describe where he dives in this underwater world just offshore. The Great African Sea Forest stretches from right up Namibia all along the west coast of South Africa and then turns around the point and goes a few hundred kilometers up the east coast. So it's about 1,400 kilometers in length. And the actual kelp itself grows to up to 15 meters or 45 feet in length. So it feels like you're in a giant swaying underwater forest, especially if the water is clear. It's, it's one of the greatest sights on earth. And the top is, you know, they're heavy uh, leaves that come off the blade. So you get shafts of light coming through the holes in the leaves. And it's this kind of magical dance of light. The enormous number of animals in the kelp, living on the kelp itself, on the holdfast, in the leaves, and then a great biodiversity of animals living, you know, around the forest uh, itself. So you uh, get into this forest by doing something that I think most of us would think is torture. The water is <laughs> not exactly warm there. Even in December, I suspect it's probably not above, what, 60 degrees Fahrenheit? Maybe it's not even 50 degrees Fahrenheit yet. But you swim without a wetsuit. Why do you do this? And you, you do offer an explanation in your book. So I want you to tell me about your ideas regarding brown fat. Yeah, so, I mean, I grew up 
you know, very close to the ocean, so close that the waves used to, you know, break parts of our house down. So I grew up diving from three years old and we never had wetsuits in those days. So I had, you know, my first 10 years of life doing that. And I had a, I always in the back of my mind knew that this cold was something special. And whenever I had a difficult time, I used to go back into that, that cold water. And then about 10 years ago, I just decided I'm going to try and dive you know, every day for a decade. And I didn't want to wear the wetsuit because I wanted to try and adapt my body to the cold and see how that affected me. And what it does is it gives you this incredible lift. There's a big shift in brain chemistry, an enormous amount of dopamine introduced to the brain. The cortisol levels drop radically. So you feel much calmer and you feel uplifted. So it's this wonderful feeling. And also your your mind somehow works better. So I, I do a lot of underwater tracking and you, you need to have your mind really engaged. So the cold, ironically, actually helps with that tracking. And you ask about the brown fat. So every baby is born ready for the wild environment. We are wild born creatures. So it's born with a brown fat, which are little pockets that act as thermoregulation devices. They heat the body when it's cold. And if we don't expose ourselves to cold, what happens is the, this brown fat kind of withers and doesn't become useful. But if you expose yourself over and over again to cold, the brown fat builds up. And sometimes, you know, if you're really feeling good and healthy, because a lot of other parameters have to be in place, you know, you can be in this cold water here and really starting to get quite cold. And then suddenly you just feel this heat being released by the body. It's an incredible feeling. It's almost ecstatic. And you can feel yourself warming up in that cold and you can keep going. So it's an amazing device that's part of our evolutionary makeup. It's almost like having an inbuilt cloak, a warm coat, but inside your body that just turns on and, and keeps you comfortable. I gather, though, that this doesn't happen exactly the first time you go in cold water. How long did it take you to develop your, your brown fat and this remarkable reaction to the cold? So what I could feel was after about a year of going every day, uh, quite a, a big difference, uh, stopping shivering after each dive. And then it just seems to increase over the next sort of two or three years gradually. And then, of course, another big factor with the cold is it seems to improve your immune system dramatically. I used to get you know, ill with flus and colds and things pretty regularly. And I just, I can't remember when I last had a, a flu or cold or anything like that. So it really does make a massive difference to the immune system. Well, certainly it's very convenient right now in this time of COVID and the stresses that we see around the world, including South Africa, to have that ability. So, of course, we're having this discussion with you, Craig, because of your documentary, My Octopus Teachers. And, and you know, one of the most remarkable uh, moments in that film is when she actually extends uh, her arm, a tentacle, and touches your hand. Why do you suppose a wild animal would make contact with, with a human in this way? Yeah, it's really strange. Uh, you know, and it's, it's not easy to answer that in many ways. You know, it's, it's totally mysterious. Not a lot, but quite a few animals will will sometimes decide to reach out and make contact with a human. In the case of octopus or cephalopods, they have a natural curiosity. So their whole lives are balanced between this fear and curiosity. And they're almost like a cat. You know how curious cats are. They just can't help themselves. And when she's putting that one arm out like that, she's also, all her other arms are attached very strongly to the den. So she wants to know, she wants to feel, she wants to taste because they, you know, they can taste with the suckers as well. But she's being very careful. You know, she's putting the one arm out and, and, and she just can't help herself. What is this strange creature here? What does this thing smell like, taste like? And they, they, it's curiosity. It's, it's sheer curiosity. Craig, uh, you know, here at the, in Boston at the New England Aquarium, I also got to meet an octopus, courtesy of naturalist Cy Montgomery, named Octavia, I think, and she was in a tank, not in the open ocean, and she also extended one of her arms to hug 
my right arm, and I felt hmm. so connected to her. And then I was heartbroken when I learned that she would only live a year. Why such a short life, do you think? Yes, I had the privilege of speaking to Sai not very long ago and, read, of course, read her wonderful book. The, it's quite interesting. You think, you know, these, these octopus only live for such a short time. I think uh, there was a giant specific octopus, am I right, Octavia? So I think they live for up to four or five years. But the smaller octopus, like my octopus teacher, only live for a year, a year and a half. And you think, oh, my goodness, you know, this is... You know, they, they're dying and they're so clever, this can't be good. But it's actually an incredible strategy, especially in the, the difficult world we you know, we're facing now with the environmental crisis because animals like cephalopods that can breed very fast, they live fast and die young kind of thing, actually much more resilient than animals, say, like sharks, like the pajama shark, for instance, grows very slowly, they get up to 35 years old, they mature late, and they're much more vulnerable than cephalopods. So it's actually a very good strategy for survival, and they're one of the animals that do uh, relatively well, even under all the pressures we're throwing at them. And in your book, by the way, you introduce us to um, another cephalopod in the kelp forest there, the cuttlefish. Uh, and you were lucky enough to witness an incredible display of how cuttlefish have Master the art of mimicry. Uh, this is something that you describe on page 159 of your book, but I suspect you can tell us about it from memory. Yeah, yeah, I never can forget. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing about learning directly from these animals, Steve. It's so powerful, and you you get impacted so heavily that you can never forget a lot of the detail. And I remember very clearly the first day that I saw a tuberculate cuttlefish. This is a small species of cuttlefish that only occurs in South Africa. And they are such masters of camouflage that I, when I looked at this creature, I had no idea what it was. I thought maybe it's a strange piece of algae or what the hell's going on here <laughs> and was mimicking the algae. And this animal then changed into a cuttlefish and jetted off and left a puff of ink in front of my face, and I was just like open mouth gobsmacked. And this animal is even better at camouflage than an octopus, if you can imagine that. It's very small, very vulnerable, soft-bodied. So it's got this incredible way of pretending to be a hard-shelled whelk. It changes its whole body shape, and it, it points its arms, and it changes its color, and even tiny details of these little polychaete worms that grow on the backs of the whelk shells. It even mimics those. So it fools predators into thinking it's a hard shell. It even then sometimes pretends to be a hermit crab living in that hard shell and drags itself along slowly where it can actually swim you know, relatively fast. And then if it has to swim, it can actually mimic a fish called a clipfish um, that lives in this environment. So this animal is truly the master of mimicry and camouflage. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. One of the most enticing aspects of your book is, is the sense that there's much more that's going on in the kelp forest and indeed in nature than just simply one creature finding its prey, that it's just sort of a, a rough and tumble and difficult and challenging world. You found a lot of cooperation and understanding and, and a and affiliation under the seas there, much of which hasn't been documented before. Talk to us a bit about that. What I found was there were such unusual alliances. And one of the most interesting alliances was between the tuberculate cuttlefish that we've just spoken about and one of my favorite fish, which is called the giant clingfish or rock sucker. And what was incredible is that when the these fish are adults, they could so easily predate or eat the small cuttlefish. I mean, it's absolutely a perfect snack for them. And the other way around as well, an adult cuttlefish would you know, quite easily eat the young fish. And in fact, they do eat a lot of fish in the environment. But for some reason, which I think I may have worked out, they have formed this ancient alliance 
where they completely leave each other alone and don't predate each other's babies. And you'll see them sitting, you know, right together like friends <laughs> in these little caves. It's, it's quite remarkable, but it's clever because they both benefit tremendously from this alliance. And it's, it's been forged over an enormous period of time in this environment. So, and I think, you know, this whole idea of, you know, nature being a kind of environment where it's just, you know, everything's killing everything else. Certainly, there are a lot of predators, for instance, in the kelp forest. And there are, I see a lot of predations and kills going on every day. But one thing I've also learned is like, if you look at the bigger picture, that the whole biodiversity is in this incredible balance. So, for instance, you know, the pajama shark is predating the octopus, but it also keeps those octopus numbers in balance because if it didn't do that, those octopuses would overwhelm a lot of the mollusks and you'd have a you know shortage of food and everyone would suffer, including the octopus. So it's incredible how the biodiversity and this whole living system and this natural intelligence is kind of looking after itself in this wonderful way and looking after us as well. I found it as a reminder of, of my responsibility as a human to not just simply be extracting from nature, but to do my role, to, to help the other creatures as they, as they help me. We have a question uh, now from a student at uh, the Boston Community Leadership Academy. It's called the McCormick School. It's for grade seven to 12, and just down the street from our studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. So um, let me ask my producer, Jenny Doring, if she could roll that tape for us. Hi, my name is Jill, and I'm from the BCLA McCormick. My question is, what is the most amazing thing that you learned while exploring the kelp forest? Lovely question, thank you. You know, I learned a, a, a great deal from my octopus teacher. I learned so much about her behavior and her species behavior. I learned, you know, I, I was able to find um, new species thanks to her actually living in her den, an incredible form of mycid that shoals inside the octopus dens. So a lot of incredible behavior. So I have many animal teachers, not only the octopus, specialized fish that surf out of the water, two meters out of the water to get their prey, the limpets, and twist them off the rock. So an extraordinary teaching in, in animal behavior that can, you know, straight from those animals. But I guess the most powerful thing that I think I learned was that all the animals in the kelp forest, and in fact, all the animals and plants in the ocean and on this planet make up what we call biodiversity. And this biodiversity has tremendous uh, intelligence and it is the immune system of our planet. And I realized and I felt, like actually felt in my heart, how this natural system has kept us alive for 300,000 years. That's how long we've been on this planet as a species. It's kept us alive since the very beginning of time, it kept our great, great, great grandfathers and grandmothers alive. And over time, it's just kept us alive and it's still keeping us alive uh, today. Every single breath we take, every mouthful of food, it's all thanks to this great natural system. And it's so important to remember that and do everything we can to help the system and to regenerate her because she's our mother. She is our mother of every single human that's ever been on this planet. We're speaking with Craig Foster about the wild and wonderful world of My Octopus Teacher. And just after the break, he'll have more stories of encounters with some animals in the great African sea forest. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, 
helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Support also comes from friends of Smeagol the Seagull and Smeagol's Guide to Wildlife. It's all about the wildlife right next door to you. That's Smeagol, S-M-E-A-G-U-L-L, SmeagolGuide.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We're back now with Craig Foster, the diver and filmmaker whose remarkable connection with an octopus in the nearshore underwater kelp forest of South Africa was captured in his Academy Award-winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher. We spoke during a Living on Earth book club event soon after the release of his 2021 book, Underwater Wild, My Octopus Teacher's Extraordinary World, which he co-authored with his diving friend and colleague, Ross Freilink. We continue now with the story of when Ross and Craig encountered a great white shark. It actually just occurred just off here where I'm, from where I'm sitting now, only a few hundred meters from where I'm sitting. And we were swimming out maybe three or four hundred meters out, and we were with a friend. And Ross, who's my um, friend and co-author, we were a bit ahead. And suddenly we turned around because our friend was, was shouting, and he'd just seen a huge great white swim past and he could see the fear and sort of shock in his eyes and it was sort of circling around towards us and i mean it is you know if you are not used to sharks they've been through jaws and all the you know media and so on have been blown up into these like you know terrifying creatures that are just after humans and will kill you and it's really quite the opposite i had been fortunate enough to spend two years diving with sharks, making a film about great whites and tiger sharks and other sharks. So I was quite used to being with sharks and I knew that, you know, first of all, they didn't see humans as food. We don't come up on their radar as food and it's actually quite hard to get close to them. So I was excited that he'd seen the shark and I wanted to stay and wait for this wonderful encounter. It's a real privilege, and it's it's pretty difficult to see a great white in the wild. They, they, they're not very common, and they stay away from humans generally. So the others were a bit horrified that I wanted to wait. But we were in a safe position. Uh, we had a big rock behind us, and we were on a shallowish shelf. And one of the things is that you don't want that great white coming underneath you and doing a vertical approach on you in, in murky water. So we were in a, there's all these protocols when working with these big sharks. So we were actually in a very safe place and we waited, but unfortunately that animal like mostly happens, it, it wasn't too interested, even perhaps a little bit afraid of these strange creatures and it moved away. But it was, uh, it was a little bit frightening for the others who weren't, you know, hadn't had the privilege of, of knowing these animals. And Ross has subsequently you know, got to know sharks much better and now would, you know, not be afraid in a, in a, a circumstance like that. Yeah, I mean, how close did the great white come to Ross? I think it came within uh, three or four meters, uh, swam past and just cruising along, no aggression whatsoever. But I mean, you see a, an animal like that is, is it's a very, it's a large animal that can weigh up to, you know, over, over a ton. So it's a large, a large intimidating shark. Of course, your close encounters weren't all with creatures with fins and gills and the ability to stay endlessly underwater. You had truly remarkable experience with an otter while swimming one day. Perhaps you could tell us about that now. Yeah, the, these, these animals are really special. It's a cape clawless otter. So they live on land in halts and little holes in the rocks and under grasses and things. And then they hunt in the the kelp forest every day, but they're extremely shy. I mean, people can be living here for quite a few years and, you know, never having seen one. I mean, you've visited many times here. I know, Steve, have you seen one of these otters? I certainly haven't. No, and I've even walked among those rocks where you have pictures of their, of, of where they go, and I've never noticed one. Yeah, so it's not an animal that you see often. And you might normally see it from a distance. So I was diving very early in the morning. I think it was um, winter, pretty freezing cold. And I was like, you know, what am I doing so early here? What's going on? <laughs> and then I just, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this 
this big creature that I think the third biggest otter in the world. It's like a medium-sized dog, like bouncing off the bottom of the ocean. They go down and they bounce off and all the, the tiny bubbles come out their fur. And I was, wow, this is, you know, um, so lucky just to get a glimpse of this Cape Clawless otter underwater in the kelp forest. It was so exciting. And I just kept my body very, very still. I was didn't move a muscle. And then I was amazed to see this otter curious, like you said, what's going on here? Now coming in closer to me, and I could sense it was a bit afraid, but also very curious. And then it approached, but it approached from behind. So it's thinking, okay, I mustn't get anywhere near this strange creature's mouth. I'm going to approach from behind and see what happens. I just kept dead still. And then I just felt its incredible little hands. They've got hands not unlike human hands, feeling my feet. <laughs> and it was absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. I was just on fire. I forgot about the cold and everything. It was just unbelievable. And then it slowly moved up my body, and then it came right in front of my face, and I stared into that wild face of that Cape Clawless Otter, and it put its little hands out and started touching my face, and it was just almost too much. I was overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed. And then it played with me in the water for maybe 10 minutes, and it was almost too much for me, uh, the experience. It was mm -hmm. so overwhelming. I got out and sat on a rock, and then the animal approached again. Very strange, mysterious encounter. It's hard to know why they do this, but it perhaps could be that early humans were hunting cooperatively uh, with these animals. And there's still a few places in the world, I believe in Bangladesh, where humans and otters hunt cooperatively. And maybe somehow, I mean, it's mysterious, this is a big maybe, this animal was, was kind of remembering some of this evolutionary past and wanted to engage again uh, with this process. Or, or maybe it was just uh, very curious and bold and wanted to uh, see what I was and realized, because it's a very intelligent animal, that I wasn't a threat. There's another question back to the octopus. Natalie uh, Arias, uh, who's in the eighth grade, asks, how have you used what you've learned from the octopus and the experience in your personal life? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's quite a difficult uh, question in a way. What it did, I, I mean, initially that comes to mind is when you start having relationships with wild animals and a lot of wild animals, it takes a lot of pressure, strangely enough, off your human relationships. You know, we rely very heavily on human relationships for our well-being. But as you start having the relationships with these wild animals, and spending time with them, and I like sometimes spending time alone with them, you kind of feel that it's a wonderful feeling, the pressure off the human relationships. And that is a very positive thing because you don't, you're not so needy anymore, but you just want that relationship with that mm -hmm. human because you love them, you care for them, and it's not so much you need them. And I think it's something to do with, you know, since, if we go back in time, and I'm very fascinated with human origins, and I'm fascinated with living wild and how sophisticated uh, early humans were. And I think that it's a natural state. It's, we used to, and we're expecting to have relationships with multiple animals in our environment. So the psyche is expecting that. And when we don't have that, we put more weight on our human relationships, and that can sometimes be a bit difficult. So that's one of the things that I guess I've I've got a lot out of that, is I've have this this relationship with these wild animals, and it's improved, I think, my, my human relationships. So to what extent does the ocean heal you? I mean, you and your co-author, Ross, mentioned in this volume that you've been recovering from emotionally traumatic experiences you, you've had. You talk about divorce. Ross mentions a, a sad, a difficult relationship with his father. So how has the ocean healed you? I think in actually in a number of ways. As I say, the daily immersion, almost anybody can be in a, a not a very good mood or quite tired, lethargic, 
and I promise you, I'll take you into that water. <laughs> and 20 minutes later, you're going to feel completely different. It almost works for everybody. <laughs> and that's because there is actually a big brain chemistry shift and a physiological shift. And that can last for many hours of the day. And then, of course, having a relationship with wild animals changes one dramatically. You feel connected to your environment. You know their behaviors. You have a sense of place. You don't feel so separate a lot of the time. You know, so separate. You feel like you are connected to an environment. And that psychologically is very empowering. And it also gives you purpose and meaning because you, the more you know, the more interesting it is. I mean, I just can't wait to get back every day to see what's happening to, I've got 20 or 30 mysteries I'm working on. Will I be able to get a little bit further with solving them, taking photographs, I'm writing down the notes, interacting with a whole group of incredible marine biologists who are fascinated with this world. It's a, an empowering way of living and you kind of fall in love with wild nature. And I think this is something that's humans have done for a very long time. So you feel kind of a little bit in the human design. You feel like you are doing maybe what you're designed to do, and that feels good. But it's not like this perfect elixir that, you know, you just go and do that and then everything's fine. Of course, there's, you know, a lot of things come along, life's difficulties, but it's also incredible to have the tool of the ocean. If I'm struggling, I force myself to go down there and I force myself in that cold water. And I can normally get out of that difficult space because it has this, this way of affecting one quite dramatically. Craig, speaking of difficult spaces, places as a species, we're in trouble. Just look at the ocean. I mean, between climate change, uh, plastic pollution, changing the ocean chemistry to make it more acidic. We're making things difficult uh, for ourselves and for the creatures that are there. How do you think getting closer to the oceans might help us reverse this decline in the way we humans are, are treating this environment that supports us? I mean, should we all just get in the water and take a look? I think we should. I mean, it, but, you know, it's also doesn't have to be the water. If you are far away from the water, you know, your backyard, there's, there are insects. Or if you're even in a city, they're actually, in most cities, they're incredible animals. The biggest, I think, threat in many ways to our environment is this disconnection. Or what I call the cooling of the human heart to nature is, in my mind, the greatest threat. And if we don't know creatures and plants and fungi and algae and all these wonderful things, it's hard to care for them. It's hard to make decisions in life to regenerate or benefit nature. So the act of connection is an extraordinary act in empowering oneself and others to think about system change, to think about ways to regenerate this biodiversity, which is the very lifeblood of ourselves and our planet. And it doesn't matter where you are or what animals or plants or living forms you get to know, it's just making that connection again. Because when you've made the connection, you definitely start thinking and caring about that, that thing you start to love. Well, it's very attractive. I mean, one might say that you're advocating a quiet reverence, like Jane Goodall, who sat and sat and sat until finally one of those primates was able to approach her to make the connection the way that you made the connection with your octopus and otter. and So to what extent is the prescription for healing our planet one of patient waiting and expectation, waiting and seeing how nature approaches us as opposed to us trying to thrust our way out into nature? That's a wonderful way, I think, to put it, Steve. And I can hear it comes from you having thought a lot about this. Nature is so much more sophisticated than us. We think our technology is so sophisticated, but it's, you know, it's so slow and pathetic compared to the technology of nature. I mean, what she can do 
at ambient temperature we couldn't even think about doing with our technology. It's it's quite extraordinary. So she has all the answers. She knows what to do. We knew on this planet, we the the new babies on the block. So we need to really uh, listen to her and watch her because I think we can learn so much from her. So I, I love that, uh, love what you're saying, that idea. Craig Foster is a co-founder of what he, he calls the Sea Change Project and co-author of Underwater Wild, my octopus teacher's extraordinary world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. Uh, what a gift. Thanks so much, Steve. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Chloe Chen, Iris Chen, Josh Kroon, Jenny Doring, Delaney Dreyfus, Mark Kausch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Louis Mallison, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelitis, Jake Rigo, Anna Richter, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Larish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.